Welcome to another episode of the Luke Tullock podcast. Before we get going today, I just want to let you know that my Science of Fitness course intake for 2021 is happening very soon. Today is the 13th of January as I record this, and I'm going to be sending out emails very soon on how to get into the course. So if it's something you might be interested in, head over to my website. You'll find the link in the description of this podcast and you can get on the mailing list. All right, so this episode is going to be around Q&A, listener Q&A. I've got quite a few questions that have come through from various channels and I'd like to answer them. So no more preamble, I'll dive straight in. The first question, do you believe that the quality of food has an effect on losing body fat easier than less nutritional food? The answer is really yes. I mean, fundamentally, the nutritional value of the food, or let, let's say the micronutrients of the food, doesn't really have much of an effect in the sense that it does come down to energy balance. But of course, there's far more to health than simply energy balance. Like I always used to say, look, I can get you lean on KFC, but you're going to feel like shit and you're probably going to be hungry a lot of the time. So fundamentally, we do need to bow to this rule of energy in and energy out but there's far more to you know both your health and also your ability to simply stick to that energy in and energy out based on the nutrition of your food so of course things like fiber are going to make you feel fuller things like getting in enough micronutrition and you're feeling better you're feeling healthier means you can probably train better you have more energy you sleep better all of those sort of things so fundamentally yes it, it makes quite a big difference the sort of food quality that you eat but i also want to emphasize that there are a lot of people who eat quote-unquote healthy foods but they still struggle to maintain a body composition that they're happy with so it's not a case of either or i do think you got a better chance of maintaining your health and your weight if you're eating nutritionally dense foods but it's not going to automatically mean that you end up being lean or having a lot of muscle or anything like that so it certainly comes down to a balance um and you know it's one of those where sometimes we get this weird false dichotomy of like, well, either you're if it fits your macros and you just kind of eat whatever you want or, you know, you eat clean and neither of those things are necessarily the, the right way to go, so to speak. Thank you for the question. Okay, next one. How best to know if you are effectively building muscle in a building phase? So this is the tough thing about muscle is that it's really difficult to measure changes because it happens quite slowly in most cases. So by the time you've gotten out of your sort of beginner phase of lifting, you'll find that the muscle gains start coming much slower and that makes it a little harder to sort of measure than say fat loss, which tends to happen a lot more easily. And you tend to have these really big visual changes. In fact, just by losing fat, you can often look more muscular, even if you haven't put on any muscle, just because now the, the muscle is actually visible. So the problem there is, well, how do I tell if I'm actually putting on muscle? There's a couple of ways you can go about it. Of course, you can do the sort of visual check. You can get something like a DEXA scan or an in-body scan or something like that. But one of the major issues with those is that they're not particularly accurate in, in the sense that they have a fairly broad variation, a margin of error in how they measure your body composition. And that could be something like four to 6% in either direction in terms of body fat. So you could get a DEXA scan and it could tell you that you are say 15% body fat, but in reality, you could be anywhere between like 11% and 19% body fat. And that's quite a broad margin. And of course it means that then if you go and train really hard and eat really well for six weeks and go back and get another scan, well, you're probably still gonna be within that margin of error. You can't make changes to your body composition that quickly. 
And so it's not really gonna tell you with any certainty whether you've gained muscle, lost fat, that kind of thing. So essentially what we have to do is use proxies. We have to say, okay, well, if I'm getting enough protein, so at least 1.6 grams per kilo per day, uh, if I am making progress with my training, so what does that mean exactly? Like you can get stronger without putting on muscle because you can get an increase in the nervous system coordination of motor units and that sort of stuff. So you can produce more force with the muscle you've got and that can come up display itself as being stronger in the gym, but it doesn't necessarily mean you gain muscle. Well, it's just one factor. So we could either lift more weight for the same reps or we could keep the same weight and lift for more reps. And we wanna see that happening on a consistent basis in our training. Doesn't mean it has to happen every week, but certainly from the start of a programming phase to the end of one, you'd expect to see something improve, right? Then if we're getting enough sleep, that certainly impacts how much muscle we are gaining. And if we're consistently in a calorie surplus and our weight is going up, then we can surmise that we are putting on muscle. So there's a bunch of different things. And I think if you can go through that checklist and just tick off the boxes on each of those, then you can be pretty confident that you're gaining muscle. Now, as for how long you might want to keep doing those, well, I think that a gaining phase should probably go for at least eight weeks. And the reason why is because, like I said before, muscle gain is quite slow and you don't want to get into the situation where, you know, maybe you're, you're gaining for four weeks and then going into a cutting phase or maybe you're gaining for six weeks and going into a cutting phase and you never really accrue much muscle mass at the end of the day. So I think at least eight weeks is a good way to go about things and essentially just using those proxies to know whether you're gaining muscle. Now, the next question is, I'm currently teaching two spin classes a day, five days a week. So a lot of cardio there. Also strength training four to five times a week. Will I lose much muscle in my lower body? I'm on about 130 grams of protein a day. Is this an adequate amount? So I've got an entire podcast on this called uh, Concurrent Training. And essentially with that amount of spin classes, so we're talking 10 spin classes a week, that's enough volume in my opinion to significantly interfere with the signaling processes that maximize muscle hypertrophy. So the gist of that podcast essentially is that when we do things that are cardio or more endurance based, those have roughly opposite adaptations on a molecular level compared to what we're trying to achieve with strength training or bodybuilding. And so we need to balance those because if the signal that promotes all of these molecular changes for endurance is overpowering, then it means that all of the changes that we want to occur so that we get stronger or bigger muscles is going to get drowned out. So we want to try and balance those as much as we can. Now, I don't want this to be scaremongering and say like, well, you shouldn't do any cardio. You shouldn't do any aerobic work because you can't get big and you can't get strong if you do that. That's absolutely not true. But the devil's kind of in the dose. The, the poison is made by the dose in this case. And so I'm trying to say the dose maketh the poison. Um, and so what we need to do is just make sure that firstly, our cardio or endurance-based sessions are separated by as much time as possible with our strength training sessions. And that might mean that if you have to do them in the same day, they're at the opposite ends of day. Uh, it might mean that you try and do them on different days if you can. Now, if you're doing as many as 10 spin classes a week, then of course it's gonna be really difficult to keep those away from your strength training sessions, but you should probably just do the best you can. And then, you know, just the sheer volume is something that's gonna make a really big difference. But if you want a lot more discussion and detail on that, definitely go and listen to that podcast on concurrent training. Now, next question, let me just bring it up. 
one piece of advice you would give a coach to have a successful online business? For me, the biggest thing is consistently showing up and understanding who you're talking to. Something that I've sort of struggled with because you know I kind of want to help everybody and I feel like I've got some knowledge to, to help a lot of different people. But being able to solve one problem for one group of people is really, really powerful. And that's gonna separate you from the rest of the noise in the fitness industry. Now, just because you serve a certain group and you help them solve a particular problem doesn't automatically mean you're gonna get customers. It does take a lot of work and a lot of consistency to do that. And you'll find that the people who have the biggest Instagram accounts, the most YouTube subscribers and video views, the most successful podcasts, the most successful blogs, generally takes them a few years to really get that going to the point where it's a self-sustaining thing. And it just takes a lot of consistency and a lot of showing up to do that. But don't let that discourage you. I know people who don't have a huge following, but they have an incredible business because they connect with the people that they're trying to serve and they do a really good job showing them how they solve their problem. You know, I know people who have accounts on Instagram, for example, that have tens of thousands of followers and they can't get a decent business off the back of it. And I know people who have like 2000 followers and they have plenty of clients, their books are full and they're doing a great job with them. So fundamentally it comes down to being consistent and solving a problem for one group of people. Second to that, you know, there's a quote from um, one of my mates in the industry, Jonathan Goodman, who runs the Online Trader Academy. And his basic principle is do a good job and let everybody know about it. So, you know, you've still got to actually be good at what you do at the end of the day, and you've got to let people know about it without being in their face. Um, so I think that's really important. Okay, next question. Is a deload week important after six to 12 weeks of training? What happens if I train for say an entire year without having a deload day or a deload week? Deloads are often misunderstood. You'll find in most programs that a deload is kind of automatically programmed in. They, they're just kind of put in there every third or fourth or fifth week, um, or maybe every six weeks, just as insurance. Now, what's the point of a deload? It's to try and dissipate fatigue. Uh, if our fatigue gets too high, it means that we're gonna be unable to continue to perform at a good level in the gym to keep driving our adaptations, to keep building muscle or keep building strength, that kind of thing. So at some point, you may get to the point where your fatigue is built up to where it's interfering with your ability to keep progressing in your training. And then if you take a deload week by cutting down the training volume, staying further away from failure, just having an easy week in the gym, or maybe even just taking the week off completely, you drop that fatigue, it allows you to come back in and still perform at a high level again. Now, you may not need to deload if you are really, really good at delivering the perfect amount of, or you know, in the ballpark of the perfect amount of training volume and not accruing too much fatigue. That's a bit of a tough thing to do and you kind of won't know whether you've done it until you already have the fatigue, if that makes sense. So I've spoken about this before where like, if you come in and you give a really high amount of training volume, you kind of don't know that it's too much training volume until you've already done a week or two of it and then you're experiencing fatigue and your performance is tanked. And the only way for you to get back and reset again is then to deload or drastically drop your training volume. So it's one of these things where it's a little bit of a chicken and egg because it's, it's a lagging indicator when your performance drops that you've kind of accrued too much fatigue. So that's why the sort of proactive deload is in there. That's why people program a deload every 
X amount of weeks, just because it kind of automatically dissipates that fatigue and makes sure that you never end up in a position where you're going backwards with your training. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that every X number of weeks, you have a week where you're not making any progress in your training and you may be just deloading when you don't actually need to. So there's two ways you can do things. You can do that, pre that proactive deload or you could do a reactive deload. And that means that once you detect that your training performance is starting to dip significantly, you can then deload, dissipate that fatigue and dive in again. And that might mean that you deload far less frequently and it gives you more time each year to actually train and get better and make adaptations. Now, the other thing I also want to mention is that sometimes a deload can be done just on a certain movement or a certain body part. You don't necessarily have to deload everything at once. And that's another interesting thing to think about. Like, especially if you're someone who is like a power lifter, for example, and you're chasing the big lifts, you might just have to deload your upper body and you can keep training your squats and deadlifts or the other way around. So it can be done on a lift by lift basis as well. But I do think that a deload is probably going to be necessary at some point for most people, just because it's really difficult to pick a perfect amount of volume. Um, if you never, ever have to deload or you never, ever feel beat up from training and like you need to take a break, it's fairly likely that you just haven't pushed yourself hard enough. Sometimes it's really good for us to test our limits and to push super hard. And if that means that sometimes we have to take like half a step back just so we can recover and reload and go again, then I think that's totally fine and probably a good way of going about things. Uh, next question, is it truly just about calories in, calories out for menopausal women? When sleep is affected, stress levels are high, etc. Uh, I lift heavy as a power lifter and I've never struggled so much in my life to shift body fat. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it does come down to calories in, calories out, but like I alluded to before, it's one of those things where there's a lot of stuff that can affect the calories in and calories out, right? Like you mentioned over here, if you have poor sleep, higher stress levels, that kind of thing, it's gonna have downstream effects on how much you're likely to move around, your, your neat levels, on your appetite, on your mood, on your recovery from training and how easily you adapt from your training, all of that sort of stuff. So it does come down to calories in, calories out, but it's obviously not that useful. There's a ton of stuff that goes into that. So you still need to have some kind of control over your stress, a good sleep routine, all of those things. And that will make it much more easy for you to shift body fat for sure. Um, you know, but beyond that, of course, the hormonal changes that you go through can shift where that body fat's being stored during menopause. So women go from having a lot of estrogen around, which tends to shift them into a, a gynoid fat pattern, more fat on the hips and legs. And as their estrogen drops, as they go through menopause, it, it goes down to a functionally very low level. And that means that they shift more towards an android pattern, which is closer to what men have. So more fat around the middle. And that can be a bit of a frustrating thing because you see the changes in, in your body occurring and you feel like you don't have any control over it, right? But it still does come down to those calories and calories out. You know, I would be probably more focused on some of those factors that you mentioned like making sure your stress is under control, sleep's good, you know, hydration's good, all of those basic things. Um, and, and that can help to fuel things like exercise performance. It can help you to feel like you're improving your well-being. You can just feel a bit happier, moods better, all that sort of stuff. And then as a consequence of that, you may see some body composition changes, but if nothing else, you're just taking care of your health in general that way and feeling better. Okay, next question. During my sleep, my Fitbit shows that I wake up a lot. And I'm only getting max one hour of deep sleep. My question is, how do I improve my quality of sleep? Okay, so firstly, I think we have to talk about the fact that a Fitbit is probably not an ideal way to track your sleep or your deep sleep. Um, it's, it's very difficult to do. What a Fitbit or your phone will do is it'll track how much you're moving during sleep. And then the idea is that 
in some stages of sleep, you actually move a lot less than others. You, you kind of get locked in a little bit and you don't move so much. And so it, it, it sort of tries to correlate that, but it, it's really difficult to do that kind of sleep study without actual lab equipment. So that, that's just the first thing we have to obviously address the tracking error component of things. But to kind of address the actual question of how do you improve the quality of your sleep when you, when you do go to bed, it still comes down to a lot of the things that you might do as far as a sleep routine goes. So, you know, limiting blue light, getting into a good routine, going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, uh, getting light exposure during the day so that your, your brain knows what time it is. All of those things are going to be really important because it sets the circadian rhythm. So there are times throughout the day when certain hormonal and body processes are supposed to be happening and times when the opposite of those are supposed to be happening, right? And if you can get alignment in one part of the day, it helps at other parts of the day too. Uh, if you think about it, your brain is, is stuck in the dark. It's inside your skull. It doesn't have any connection to the outside world aside from organs. So sensory organs like our eyes but then also some of our internal organs. So when we, when we experience training stimulus, our muscles actually have these sort of peripheral clock mechanisms in them that help to fine tune the whole body's clock mechanisms and understand what time of day it is. Same thing with when we eat, our liver and gut has these peripheral clock mechanisms that can help to fine tune the brain's sense of what time of day it is. Now, of course, the main stimulus is light, but all those other things matter as well. And so having a really good routine with all of that is gonna be fairly important in my mind. One of the things that I have found has made a really big difference for me personally, and this is anecdotal, but uh, there is some evidence now in the literature that most people do a little bit better having at least half of their calories in the first half of the day. Now, I think a lot of people in fitness tend to not do this. They tend to uh, save calories for the end of the day. And it's probably not the best thing if you want to maximize your sleep. So that could be something to experiment with. But other than that, I think being in a really good daily routine in terms of your light exposure, when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you train, when you eat can be really helpful. And that's not gonna solve things overnight. It is probably gonna take you know a couple of weeks for that to really kick in and, and feel like it's making a difference, but that's something that I would experiment with and see if you have any you know positive response to that. Um, let me just bring up the next question here and see how we go. Uh, so next question, if the goal is fat loss, is there a potential benefit to doing low intensity, intensity cardio after resistance training or high intensity interval training on the assumption that the latter option may increase lipolysis and the former would then oxidize the fatty acids? Okay, gotcha. So basically what they're saying here is that uh, if you have some kind of increased exercise intensity and then to, to basically release the fatty acids into the bloodstream, and then uh, after that, you do some kind of aerobic activity where you're going to burn more fatty acids as a percentage of your fuel. Is that going to result in better fat loss? Uh, the answer is no at the moment. There is one study that indicates that perhaps we can even get some specific uh, spot reduction if we do something like this. So for example, you could do a leg strength training session and then immediately afterwards do some low intensity cardio on the lower body and you could potentially burn a bit more fat from that uh, from that area but that's one study out of like you know seven to ten studies that i'm aware of that have that effect and most of them say that there's absolutely no effect on this so fundamentally it does just come down to how many calories overall that you've burned um but you know i think the jury's still out on that right now the weight of the evidence is very strongly in favor of the fact that it doesn't really matter okay let's do one more question 
Is training on very low calorie or fasting days a good idea? You might not be getting in enough protein and lower energy. Yeah, personally, I would probably not train on those days. I would keep the intensity low of any movement and exercise that you do. So maybe just like walking or something like that. If you're going to train, I'm a big proponent of trying to position nutrients around that period. And the reason why is is obvious. It just helps to facilitate recovery. You also get an increased sensitization of muscle tissue to things like incoming amino acids for muscle protein synthesis, uptake of carbohydrates into glycogen stores, that kind of thing. Now, I don't think that you're going to, you know, do damage or anything like that if you train on a low calorie or a fasting day, but I definitely think you're not gonna get as robust a response, as robust an adaptation, as if you position those on days where you have a bit more calories. Now, sometimes I get people asking a different version of this question, which is, if I am cycling my calories and I have some higher calorie days and some lower calorie days, should I have like a refeed or my higher calorie days on the day that I train or on the day that I rest? And I think you can make an argument either way, to be honest, because, you know, if it's on the day that you train, you may feel like having more nutrition around psychologically helps you get through the session. You've got more fuel for the session. You've got more fuel available immediately after the session to begin the recovery process. But remember that that recovery process also happens on the days in between your training. So those calories won't necessarily go to waste unless if you put them on the days in between, right? So I think you can make an argument either way with, with that one. Um, but again, if I were to err on any side, I would be putting more nutrition around training if possible. All right, that's it for now. Uh, thanks a ton for listening. Once again, have a look at my website to join the mailing list. Science of Fitness course enrollments are opening in the next week or so. So definitely jump on board with that and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks a ton. Cheers. Thank you.